welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest is a good friend of ours, Mike Aquilina. He's the author of Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized, published by Emmaus Road Publishing, naturally available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. Great to have you back on the show, Mike. Thanks it's been a couple of years. Yes. Been, you know, we first did something back almost about 20 years ago, believe it or not. More than that, actually. When, when we were both uh, in, in pre-K yeah. at the time there, <laughs> uh, obviously. But, you know, I, you're a renaissance man in a lot of ways because you write books. You, you, you've done so much over the years. You've co-hosted shows with Scott Hahn, uh, multiple shows we've aired on the network. But what, the part I didn't know was about you being a musician or a, a music writer. Explain a little bit about that. Well, I, um, I've been Dion DiMucci's song, songwriting partner for about uh, a dozen years now. Uh, we've done four albums together, and this week, I'm happy to say, uh, the album that, um, that we worked on together is, uh, is number one on the Billboard Blues chart. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So you will be donating the stipend, which we don't give you to do this show, uh, to EW10, of course, right? Oh, sure. Can't, can't. Uh, so can't I can see why you'd write a book about friendship, because uh, you, you friend up uh, Dion, and the next thing you know, you're on the Billboard charts. He's been a dear friend for a long time, a lot longer than we've been writing music together. Yeah. Right. Now, this is Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. And, and in the beginning, you say a friend is more to be longed for than light. A friend is sweeter than the present life. St. John Chrysostom says this. It would seem today that friendship is kind of passe. <laughs> is it, and why is it important that we're losing it? You know, I, 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 I think it is passe in a sense that it's not enjoyed anymore, and people aren't sure they know how to do it. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that we long for. It's something that we need. We might feel the longing for it, even if we can't put it into words, because I think it's something that's naturally human. It's a naturally human good. But it seems that over the last 30 years, for some reason, there's been a decline in friendship, and it's been borne out in studies on social isolation. Is that, is that increased because of the technology that we have, that people tend to be able to reside in a virtual world, and now also with the COVID just really exponentially pushing it forward? The sad and scary thing, Doug, is that the statistics were heading this way long before Facebook, long before COVID. Really? Okay. There was a longitudinal study on friendship and social isolation that was conducted be between 1985 and 2005. In 1985, the average American um, reported having three close friends, mm -hmm. right? In 2005, those numbers had dropped precipitously, especially for males. And by that time, you had a quarter of the people participating in the study saying that they had no friends whatsoever, not a single person they could confide in that they could speak their heart to. Mm -hmm. And this is a scary situation because, as uh, the British government found out, Loneliness leads to all right. kinds of physical ailments and mental ailments, and it becomes a public health crisis. Well, we've seen that with suicide and, right. Right, and despair, those kinds of things like that. I'm wondering, listening to you, you talk about that, is some of that because we've come, become such a mobile society over the last 50 years, where rather than people would live in places with extended families yes. and where they knew all the people that they went to high school with, those people separate, and though they might be in touch as friends, they, they don't really see them. I think that's, that's part of it, mm -hmm. you know, and even more mobile on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Most people don't live their lives in the place where they, they park their car and sleep, mm -hmm. okay? You live in the suburbs, you work in the city. 
all right? So you're commuting every right. day. You go from your garage to the city, back to your garage. You're home for a little bit. If your kids play sports, you're driving somewhere else for them to play sports. If they're in activities, you're driving somewhere else for that. And so your life isn't spent uh, uh, kind of linked up with the right. lives of the people who live to the left and the right of you and the people who live behind you. Uh, that's a, a huge change and it's a big challenge for pastors who are trying to build community. In the right. 60s and the 50s it wasn't this way. Your parish you know, well, it was made up of the people who lived in your neighborhood, and they all knew each other. And it was also central to your social life in many right. ways. Right, you know, it had the Little League team, it had the Boy Scout troop, right, right. so the lives were all enmeshed. It's not that way anymore. Right, and it's interesting too, because really, uh, behind this book, The Friendship and the Fathers, is really the idea that, that that's how the evangelization in the early church happened. And, and hence, if we're not building those friendships anymore, yes. how can we evangelize? That's right. Well, the first evangelization took place at a time when Christianity was a crime. Mm -hmm. And not only a crime, but a capital crime. If you're caught practicing the Catholic faith, you could be executed for it the next day. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we see plenty of evidence in, uh, of that in, in the, the Christian and pagan documents of the time. Uh, so uh, we didn't have access we didn't have access to what we'd call the media, mm -hmm. okay, which was pretty much just public speaking or, you know, having documents copied out. If owning that document could get you killed, nobody wants to copy it out mm -hmm. for you. Nobody wants to distribute it for you. So the only medium available to the early Christians for the dissemination of the faith was friendship. Yeah. You had to make friends with the people next door. You had, to, you had to know the guy who operated the next market stall, and you had to get right. into his life and establish a bond of Well, trust. wasn't that also because in order to survive, you needed that cooperation? Sure. You couldn't live your life in isolation, or most people could. Right? Sure. But, it, but you really had to make an effort for it if you were Christian. Because mm -hmm. uh, think about it. If you let someone into your life, you're making yourself vulnerable because they could denounce you. They could get angry with you over a trifle, mm -hmm. turn you into the authorities, and you're gone, your family's gone. So there was a risk involved in making friends, and yet Christians were willing to do it, and they succeeded at it, because we know that the church grew during those years, during those centuries, at a rate of 40% 40 40 per right. decade. Right. It's right. amazing. You say in the beginning, we can be forgiven, we moderns, for any jealousy we feel towards the early Christians. Why would we be jealous of the early Christians? Because think about it. You know, we complain now about the pressures we feel as Christians living in a secular and secularist society. But think about the pressures they lived under where they could be killed for their faith where they could lose their jobs, they could lose their family property, they could lose everything, and they were putting their family at risk as well. So these were, these were big risks they were taking by getting into the lives of the people around them. Uh, we feel pressures, but we still have access to media. Mm -hmm. You and I could sit here on bookmark and people around the world are watching us. That's amazing. We have access to media that the early Christians could only dream of, and this situation, Doug, lasted for 275 years or so. Well, you talk about uh, the expansion. You mentioned how it was urban, and then you say how rapidly it's, it's spread anyway, even rurally. But you said the numbers can be simultaneously encouraging and dispiriting to Christians. Why? <laughs> encouraging because we know it's possible. Mm -hmm. Wow, these people arose in a pagan world that didn't know Christ and, and didn't even know the revelation to Israel, and they converted at a rate of 40% per mm -hmm. decade until the Christians pretty much owned the empire, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and that happened just very gradually. That should give us hope. 
That's the encouraging part. The dispiriting part is, is how we're not succeeding at their level, even though we have all the advantages at our disposal. We have money, we have media, we have all of these other things that they did not have, they could not have. Right. Uh, so, I mean, we should feel convicted if 25% of the people in 2005 were reporting that they didn't have a single friend, well, Christians should say that I'm failing at Christianity. Right. Okay. Now, you say in spite of religious freedom, in spite of our wealth, in spite of proliferation of institutional apostolates, we're not converting the world the way we did when we were poor and persecuted. But it's not even that we're, con we're not converting them. It's going the other way. Yes, we're losing people, right. yeah. And so, so, I mean, there is a certain dynamic in history when we, uh, you know, where we value the faith more when it's persecuted than when it's not. Mm -hmm. When it's not, we get kind of cushy, easy. Um, we relax in our faith. Um, we get to the point where even, even abstinence from meat on Friday seems an impossible burden to us. Mm -hmm. It's silly, really, when you think about it, when you think about what our ancestors gave up right, for the faith. Right. But, but, you know, that's the way we are. It's human nature. Uh, we have to make more of an effort now than we did before. Again, so much of the effort we have to make is in making friends. 25% of our neighbors, and I believe that today it would be much more mm -hmm. if that study were still going on, but 25% of our neighbors are lonely and consider themselves right. friendless. Right, and you alluded to uh, the 2018 British government announced it was going to treat loneliness as a health crisis. Yes. The government actually appointed a minister of loneliness to coordinate, and as you, is that next to the Ministry of Funny Walks, <laughs> as you allude to here with Monty Python? Right? Yes, I mean, it reminds you of that. It <laughs> right, sounds right, crazy right, that you right. have to get a prescription to have a social interaction. Right. You have to go to a, a kind of drugstore, a pharmacy, to get it filled and get a social interaction. It should not be this way if there are churches in our land. You say, and you ask the question, but why are we so lonely? Hmm. And why are we so lonely? Why can't we build friendships with people? What are we afraid of? I think the, the dynamics you mentioned earlier about mobility, that plays into it. Divorce plays into it in a big way, and we right. don't like to talk about that, but often friendships have a short lifespan because of a divorce. You know, that, that households are broken up, and then the friends of those people tend to feel like they have to choose sides, mm -hmm. you know? And so friendship becomes something more brittle at that point. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why friendship has broken down as a social reality, as a skill, as a virtue, according to the fathers. Well, it's interesting because you quote Cicero here, friendship may be shortly defined a perfect conformity of opinion upon all religious <laughs> civil subjects united with the highest degree of mutual esteem and affection. It's interesting because you, you make the comment that that's a pagan view, not a Christian view, but that's really the view a lot of people yes. base their friendships on yeah, today. Yeah, I mean, right? I think Cicero would have loved Facebook. Right. Because right. What, what's Facebook? You create right. your little reality where you block certain people from being in your life. You know, you, you uh, unfriend people when they become inconvenient or unpleasant to you. You create this social world that's an echo chamber. Everyone mm -hmm. believes what I believe. They believe it the way I believe it. Mm -hmm. They articulate it the way I articulate it. And, 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 and you're constantly confirmed in, in your beliefs, even if they're in error. Mm -hmm. um, so Cicero would have liked that, but it wasn't the Christian way. Mm -hmm. Christians were more uh, omnipresent to people mm -hmm. than, than pagans were. Pag pagans tended to promote making friends by social class. Aristotle right. promoted that, Cicero promoted that. In fact, they had a hard time believing that it was possible to have a true friendship between people of different social classes. Right. Right. And uh, we see that in some ways today. Uh, the central event of history is the ultimate act of friendship. How so? 
the event that I'm talking about is the incarnation of God, okay? God takes on flesh and dwells among us. He comes for the sake of friendship with us. Now, if you go back to Aristotle, Aristotle says it is impossible, it's an absurdity to think that a God could have a friendship with human beings. And yet Christ comes, mm -hmm. he draws this circle of friends to him, and on the night before he suffered, he says to them, I have called you friends, mm -hmm. John 15, 15. Never forget it, because that's the meaning of his incarnation, was to become friends with us. Mm -hmm. So he changes the game of friendship at that point, because if God can become friends with us, we're talking about two very unequal parties, right? Um, we have to be open to friendship mm -hmm. with others. And it breaks down that whole class pagan system sure. that they would have promoted. You say some of the church fathers will tell us right here in this book that a friendship is doomed unless the friends are both virtuous. Where do you find all these virtuous people to be friends with? <laughs> well, you know, the thing is that we have to have the... Uh, we have to be committed to bring each other along in virtue, okay? okay? And if we're strong, we, we, know our, we know our vulnerabilities, okay? And we don't allow ourselves to fall into vice, okay? Uh, so we want to get into people's lives and help to bring them along to the next step. A, a true meaning of the understanding of encounter and accompaniment, that yes. you encounter somebody, but the accompaniment is supposed to help each one stay virtuous and, and take the right path, not accompany people as they go on the road to hell. I really believe right. that what our Holy Father is talking about when he mentions accompaniment mm -hmm. is the kind of friendships that, that were lived, right. yeah, that right. were lived right. by the right. church fathers and their pagan next door neighbors. Mm -hmm. You say as we go from the early Christian era to late antiquity, you talk about two stages. What yes. are those two stages? Okay, in the early years we find the Christians very much open to friendship with the people around us, uh, reaching out in friendship uh, to those people, uh, you know, like Justin Martyr's apology, uh, is, a, is a document that's very positive about some elements of paganism. You look at the, the letter to Diognetus, okay, it's very positive about some elements in pagan culture, reaching out, trying to find common ground, and establish uh, a place where we can be friends with one another. And then to take them from there to the next stage, which is an encounter with Jesus Christ. Um, that's the first stage. Right. Okay. The next stage is when everybody's Christian, and by the end of the time of the fathers, that's the case in the Roman Empire. Almost everyone is Christian. So what do you do then? What's your big concern? And then, uh, the big concern really was um, uh, the, about the dangers of these unequal friendships in ter in moral terms. The effect uh, of bad company. The, the right. effect of bad company. Right. We don't want to fall into vice. Mm -hmm. And so the fathers were often cautioning about this, but at the same time, really encouraging people, especially the virtuous people, especially the people who should be very apostolic mm -hmm. and reaching out and evangelistic to make friends with as many people as possible. And you make the point that uh, the fathers working so hard um, to work their way into our hearts, but all, and that they had big problems, obviously, in the, certainly in the pre-Constantinian days, but they found time for friendship. Then you say, no, we shouldn't say they found time, they made time. This yeah. is the one thing all the fathers agree on, friendship takes work. Yes, yes, so they press for conversation. They also press for personal presence. You often see that in the letters they wrote to one another, that they need to make time to get together, and that, that's what they most, most valued was the face-to-face -face time. Augustine had many friends, and some of his friends he knew only through correspondence, mm -hmm. but he always set a high bar, and he said that true friendship, he believed, could only be had with someone you, you, you actually saw and knew. Right. 
Now, you start off with Irenaeus, and the first thing people think, that has to do with heresy, so he was condemning people. What kind of friendships was he building? Well, he was talking about that, that line by our Lord, John mm -hmm. 15, 15, I call, I've called you friends. And he says that that line, um, when it's spoken by our Lord, shows the, the desire of God in the Old Testament. So many of the heretics during the lifetime of Irenaeus were saying that there were two gods. There was the God of the Old Testament who was bad, and the God of the New Testament who's good, right? And, and so they were countering mm -hmm. the God of the Old Testament. Irenaeus says, no, there's one God who's creator and redeemer. Right. And so Jesus saying that I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, he's establishing that continuity between the Old Testament and the New in terms of friendship that this is a new degree of closeness right. to the one God, the one true God. Right, you say the Old Testament God was the evil creator of this world in this Gnostic theology. You say the difference is not that we have a, a new God now, the difference is that now God is our friend. Yes, yes, because we've been redeemed, because we've been washed, we're closer to him and we can draw close in friendship. Now, uh, you have a, a, it sounds like a joke, uh, you know, Two Christians and a pagan go to the beach, three Christians come back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's Marcus Minucius Felix. Okay. And Latin scholars love his book. We have one book from him. Mm -hmm. It's always included in the collections of the Church Fathers, but it's hardly read today, and that's unfortunate uh, because it's the only book we have by him, and we know nothing or little else about his life. Marcus Minucius Felix was an African lawyer working in Rome, mm -hmm. and he was a man of some prestige at the time. Uh, he was a pagan early in his career, and he actually participated in the persecution of Christians and in their execution as a judge, as a lawyer. Um, so he, um, he had this, this checkered background, but then he converted because of the witness of the martyrs, and he became a Christian. He kept his social standing nonetheless, which is pretty remarkable. He must have been very well respected. Right. Well, what he, he wrote one book that survived, mm -hmm. and it's... Um, it's called The Octavius, and it's a story of a week, a weekend, really, a vacation weekend he took with two colleagues, mm -hmm. two other lawyers, one named Cecil and the other one named Octavius. And he's writing it as a memoir in the past. Both Cecil and Octavius were very public persons. Mm -hmm. We have inscriptions today that bear their names, oh, really? these okay. men. Okay. So we know that they're real. But he tells the story of a weekend vacation they took together on a holiday, uh, and they went to Ostia which you can still visit today, it's beautiful, and, uh, and they enjoyed everything there is to enjoy there. They, uh, they had conversations. They did what lawyers do, and they had a vigorous debate there mm -hmm. uh, because one of them, Cecil, uh, was a pagan, and he was offended by something Octavius said. So they set up a contest. Mm -hmm. They did what lawyers do. They had this debate, and it lasted the, the course of the weekend, and they set up Marcus, Minucius Felix, as the judge. Mm -hmm. And in the end, uh, Cecil is converted to Christianity. And so this remarkable thing happens, and it gives us a window, a privileged window, mm -hmm. into how friendships uh, were conducted in that time, but also how evangelization happened in that time. Right. In another chapter, you, you talk about Basil and Gregory, and you said it would be wonderful to say that these kinds of friendships are always delightful. Sometimes friends have totally different <laughs> ideas of what's right 
or what's important. They may have the best intentions, but one or the other or both can still damage the friendship just by being inflexible. And you talk about in this particular case. It also struck me in, in reading several of the stories that a lot of these guys who you're big on friendship keep wanting to be, they wanted to be hermits. <laughs> they wanted to live by themselves. So it wasn't, it always seemed like their idea was being a friend, it almost was forced upon. <laughs> well, yeah, Basil right. and Gregory, they wanted to be, they wanted to be monks together, right. you know. Uh, they had very different temperaments, very different characters, right, and, uh, and so their friendship really had some rocky times. Gregory was one of these guys who was, who could be indecisive, who always delayed things. He could procrastinate decisions, mm -hmm. uh, and he was always thinking, oh, on the one hand, on the other hand, always thinking of different options. Right. Basil was a man of action. He was decisive. He was a man active in church politics, and he knew what needed to be done. He was very much uh, concerned about the, the, the circumstances in right. the world at the time, and he wanted to affect those circumstances right. in a big way. So they, they were dear friends. They understood each other. They had, they had a lot of things in common, their love of study, their love of prayer, their love of Jesus Christ. But Basil could be pushy, mm -hmm. and Gregory was kind of a pushover. But, you know, so Gregory would, or Basil would talk Gregory into doing things, like getting ordained and then becoming a bishop, mm -hmm. and Basil would go along grudgingly, and the grudge would dominate later on, and he would get kind of emo. He would, uh, he would uh, be resentful later mm -hmm. on, and this right. became a, a great stumbling block to their friendship. It says, Basil had made him bishop as a one-horse town at a crossroads that had never had a bishop before. The one thing Gregory never wanted to be was a bishop. They say it was the mosquitoes were really, really rough there. Yeah, and he didn't want to be a bishop. He didn't want to have public life. He wanted to have a private life. Yeah. Right, you, there's another Gregory here. This is the other Gregory. Basil's brother. He right. was the brother of Basil. You, and you talk about the idea of, you bring in Alexander the Great. Why, why did you bring in Alexander <laughs> well, the Great? Well, only because he drops the name and he mentions him uh, in a metaphorical right. way in the one letter that I included. What I wanted to show with that letter is how friends want to share their friendship, that friendships are open to the mm -hmm. world. You know, we want to bring other people into know the, the one, the, this, this beautiful person I know, and uh, we want to expand the circle of friendship. That dynamic was very much at work in the early church. It's interesting, though, the dynamic. Sometimes in expanding and trying to bring in friends, it doesn't always work. Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't. There's a risk always whenever right. we interact with other people. But as far as I can see from the mm -hmm. historical evidence, it's the only way that the gospel moves forward. Evangelization programs are great, and I think we learn a lot when we, we go through them and we mm -hmm. get our certification certificate at the end, right. you know, but they're not the most important thing. We still need to have that delivery system mm. that is friendship, that's right. real. Now there's Ambrose, people have heard about Ambrose. Yes. That he was a man who became a bishop against his will, another guy against his will. He had been a much respected Roman governor in the area, including Milan at a time when the Arian heresy was very powerful. Well, if he was going to be a bishop, he was going to do it right, you want to say. <laughs> he gave away all his possessions and started studying. Why is he so important? To well, he's important because he left us some of our earliest extensive reflections on friendship, and he's directly engaging Cicero, whom I quoted earlier. Right. So he's taking Cicero, examining him, taking what's good, and, and critiquing it from the perspective of Christianity. He's very much concerned about his clergy and the friendships that they have, because what we have uh, on him uh, that, that's about friendship mm -hmm. is addressed to the clergy and about their friendships and how they can make their friendships healthy, spiritually uh, enriching. Yeah, what did you mean? Uh, Ambrose almost casually turned the old pagan ideas of friendship upside down. Well, he did because, again, he Christianized them 
and he made these people open to the others around them, even if they didn't have perfect agreement from the get-go. I see. So in deciding which of the early church fathers you would put into here, how did you go through, was it just, you've done a lot of research on these people in the past, so was this just something that naturally came together for you? Was this an idea that, that somebody brought to you? Where, where was the genesis? <laughs> it's kind of funny the way it happened. I was at an academic conference at Notre Dame University, and, uh, and, and after I gave my paper, uh, a friend of mine, Pat Fagan from the Catholic University of America, mm -hmm. just grabbed my shoulder as I was walking back to my seat, and he said, Mike, you need to write a book about friendship and the fathers. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I said to him, I said, Pat, I don't think there's enough material. And I sat down at my seat and I started making a list mm -hmm. of what would be in such a book. I said, hey, that's a lot of material. And then when I got back to my hotel room that night in South Bend, I was Googling a little bit, I found more material. And then when I got back to my library, I found still more. And within a week, I had I had a proposal in the mail to a publisher. <laughs> okay, you work fast. Uh, in the section on John Christendom, you say, and I thought this was interesting because you would think this is such a 60s, 70s kind of idea. You can go ahead and tell your Gentile friends, as, as Christendom would call the unbelievers, what Christianity is, but it will do no good unless you live the Christian life in a way that everyone can see. <laughs> yes, he has, it's a very funny passage actually, right, right. because he has this Christian talking to his pagan neighbor and trying to witness to him, but the, the neighbor keeps saying, but you don't live that way, you don't do that. He says, yes, oh, but you should see the monks who live, who live on the other side of town, go see them, they live that way. And the neighbor says, I don't wanna see the monks, I wanna see you living what you're telling me about. Right, he also says, whoever has many friends is invincible against all men. He is stronger than any tyrant. Yes. Oh, uh, Chrysostom was very quotable, and he has so many gems like that throughout the section. Uh, he also lived friendship to, to an amazing degree. He kept friends throughout his life, even to the very end. And, uh, and so he's a model in a lot of ways, not only in his words, but in his deeds too. Now, he also says, friendship is the best medicine against heresy. How so? Huh. Well, because friends correct friends. Mm -hmm. We don't keep silent. That's something that comes up in the story of Minutius Felix, that it's because one of those friends takes the time to correct the others, um, uh, that, uh, or the other, one of the others, uh, that, that we see that friendship moving forward and, and the, the other becoming Christian and life improving. Uh, Bothius there, he had a friend who accused him of treason. What do you do when your friends are <laughs> Your friends are false. <laughs> well, but we just, he, he, uh, he, when he wrote his book, The Consolation of Philosophy, right. one of the lessons in the book was that adversity is the thing that proves the strength of a friendship. Adversity is when you learn who your true friends are. Right, very good. Another book in the works when you're not writing uh, hit songs? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm just finishing up a book now on Christianity in Africa during oh. the time of the Fathers. Great, well, make sure you stop by, Mike. Oh, it's great I, I to see you. It. Thanks, Doug, for Mike having Aquilina, me. Mike Aquilina, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized, published by Emmaus Road Publishing, available naturally through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. And this has been EWTN's Bookmark, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.